Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, February 14th, 2013. One more public service announcement for you thick-skulled men out there who didn't remember. It's Valentine's Day. If you didn't do anything, pick some crap up on your way home from uh, work. Uh, do something. You'll get the dregs of what's left, but you better do something or you'll be practicing your survival skills tonight in the uh, backyard or possibly the park down the road when you get thrown out. All right, with that knocked out and out of the way, let's go ahead and tell you what today's show is going to be about. Again, this is episode 1071 of the Survival Podcast, the long-awaited interview with Moon Valley Prepper, a.k.a. Brad Davies. And uh, I'll tell you right up front, and I'll put it in the show notes, and maybe I'll make a standalone announcement about it on the blog, because uh, you're going to get probably one shot at this. Uh, Brad is going to be on the Zello channel, the TSP Zello channel, to answer questions that have come in from this show uh, from 7 to 8 Central Time tonight, tonight, okay, uh, or 8 to 9 Eastern for those of you on the East Coast and those of you in Mountain you can, and then West Coast time, you can figure it out from there. But 7 to 8 Central, I usually give out Central because that's where I'm at and everybody else makes me figure out what their time zone is. So I make you guys do it for yourself. <laughs> anyway, this is a great show we have lined up for you. We're going to talk about raising quail. And uh, some of the numbers that we uh, that we come up with when we start doing the math on what uh, Brad's producing is just absolutely phenomenal, given the footprint of about two foot by four foot of the caging for his operation. It's 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 just pretty well outstanding. I will warn some of you that don't like to hear about animals uh, being slaughtered. That's the proper term. Uh, you're going to hear a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit about that today. So, I mean, it's a survival show. I shouldn't even have to give you the warning, but um, just wanted to let you know that, that they're being raised for eggs and meat. So at some point they graduate into bacon-wrapped deliciousness on the grill. Before we get to how to raise quail in your own backyard or your garage or Jack's new design that can't, comes up during this, a, a, a type of quail tractor that I don't think anybody else is doing yet, um, and it gets designed on the fly. Before we do that, let's go take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Backwoods Home Magazine. You know, I've been a reader of Backwoods Home since I got out of the Army in 1993, and reading work by people like Dave Duck, Duffy, Jackie Clay, John Silvera, uh, over all of those years, and today actually having a business relationship with them is just kind of a cool thing for me. And the reason I've been reading Backwoods Home for that long is they are really the source, in my opinion, for homesteading style, preparedness style information. Um, that also has a real hard theme of libertarian values throughout the entire magazine. And uh, that's important to me because I believe in liberty, and I believe in homesteading, and I believe in preparedness. So Backwoods Home, if I was going to make a magazine on those things, it would be Backwoods Home. So I don't need to make one. They did it long before uh, I was able to. 
And I recommend that you become a Backwoods Home subscriber. Check them out today, backwoodshome.com. Uh, MSB members, remember, there's a discount from Backwoods Home with a subscription, so check it out before you subscribe if you have not already subscribed. Uh, next up today, knifekits.com. Hey, you know, a lot of folks really kind of dig the idea of becoming a knife maker, but then they look at it and go, forging steel? I don't know if I'm up to that. I don't know if I want to invest all the money and the equipment necessary to do that. Uh, KnifeKits.com will make it easy for you and sell you a kit uh, where all of that part has been done for you. And you're talking about final fitting of the handle material and stuff like that, sharpening and customizing things, maybe building a sheath to go with it. Uh, or if you are that master bladesmith and you want unique raw materials, Damascus twist steel, buffalo horn, mammoth tusk, you name it, you can find it at KnifeKits.com. From beginner who needs a basic kit and even a DVD or book to go along with it, Uh, to the advanced expert and everybody in between. If you are interested in making knives, check out knifekits.com. And if you're interested in making Kydex holsters for yourself, whether it's for uh, knives or guns or anything else, they have Kydex holster kits as well. Check them out at knifekits.com. Uh, next up, uh, remember that you can help support the show uh, by joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content Available only to members. You help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. And you'll get discounts to over 30 different suppliers. If you do business in the preparedness, self-sufficiency, seeds, you name it, industry. If you buy stuff, like we talk about all the time, a few times a year, the discounts will more than pay for your membership. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, or first responders like paramedics. Email me before you join. Tell me a little bit about what you did or what you're doing, depending on whether you're prior or active service. And put service discount in the subject line. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com is my email. I will respond with a discount code so you can get uh, a discount on your membership. Uh, if you're going to do this, please do it before, not after you join. After you join, it is quite complicated, and generally I'll make you wait till renewal to get your discount. Um, also want to remind you guys, I'm going to be at the Liberty Forum uh, next week. I'm going to be there, well, I'm getting there on the 20th. Um, but the Liberty Forum officially runs from the 21st through the 24th. Everything really kicks off on the 22nd, the morning of the 22nd. I'll be speaking on the 22nd and the 23rd. I'll be doing two breakout sessions on bug-out bags, so if you missed one, you can make the other. And I'll be doing a, uh, a keynote address on the, what we're calling the Prepared Libertarian. I promise it will fire, fire you up on both the concepts of preparedness and liberty. I also want to let you know, at that uh, event, Kelly John Doe from TSP Gear Shop and SurvivalGearBags.com will be there. If you're coming and you'd like to order some TSP gear, you can order it on the TSP Gear Shop site. You can use a discount code. It's Liberty221, all lowercase letters, and the numbers are numbers. It's not spelled out, so Liberty221, no spaces. That'll give you 10% off. And uh, when you get there, you can go see Kelly at the TSP uh, Gear Shop table, and he'll hand you your stuff. This is discount is only for people attending because your stuff's going to New Hampshire, not because we don't want to give everybody a discount. We're going to run a sale for everybody uh, later, but right now this is for people coming to the Liberty Forum that want to meet me, want to meet Kelly, and other uh, liberty-oriented individuals that are part of the Free State Project. 
With that wrapped up, it is uh, my good fortune right now to introduce Mr. Brad Davies, also known on our forum as Moon Valley Prepper. I first learned about what uh, Brad was doing when I did a show on uh, on fodder systems and livestock, I believe. He left some comments on the blog and left me some numbers on how many eggs and quail he was producing a year. Then he told me he was doing it in a one-car garage, which blew me away. Then I got, you know, I got the impression from that that he was doing it like, like the whole garage was dedicated to quail production. And, th- and then I found out it was like this one stack of cages and equipment in, in the garage in one space. And I was like, I gotta get this guy on the air. And, uh, I, it took a while because I had a move in between and a lot of guests already booked and I didn't want to do this as a short mini session or something like that. I wanted to do it as a full out show. Uh, and it's definitely worth doing. It was a great interview. And uh, I I really encourage all of you guys to really listen to this one. This might be one to uh, to get a little notepad or something. I've got a ton of resources he sent me after the interview that I'll put in the show notes. The the uh, forum thread he mentions is not done yet. The guy's working 60 hours a week. He's working two jobs, so you know give him some time on the forum thread with all the photos. But he sent me a ton of resources, links to products that he mentioned and things like that. And uh, but the end result of this interview is going to be there's tons of information out there this is what you can do this is some creative ideas you can implement but if you want to do this just go do it and you'll figure it out as you go and it's not that hard and uh, to me it seems like an exceptional protein production system low cost simple easy small footprint and the ease of cleaning an animal the size of a quail can't be overstated when you look at the fact that at some point, if you're raising meat, you've got to do the deed. Uh, quail are easy to do. I'll even include uh, in the resources section my video on cleaning doves because that could definitely be done with quail. And with that, I'd like to say uh, after quite a delay in getting this done, hey, Brad, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Yeah, great to be here, man. So... I, I want to kind of just start out with, you know, what what led you to keep quail in the first place? Okay. Um, yeah, I was looking at basically what kind of livestock I could get, and uh, I started with rabbits, and I have some tilapia, and I was kind of looking for, you know, maybe something else, something where I could get some eggs out of or maybe chickens. And living in the suburbs, I could do chickens, but I couldn't really do them on the, uh, the level that I'm doing the quail, so... I started doing a lot of internet research and looking for small-scale animals that I could keep, and I came across a Japanese quail, and it just everything I was reading about them seemed really good. So I did a lot of research and ended up being even better than I thought it was going to be. So it turned out pretty well so far. So what's the, like the overall process, like the mile-high view of uh, of you know from from getting your quail to housing them to to, to day-to-day maintenance? Okay. Um, yeah, it's a pretty easy process. Basically, you just uh, you need an incubator. So you incubate them for about 17 to 18 days, and then after that, they hatch. From there, I take them and put them in the brooder, and the brooder is just, you know, a heated box. They're in there for about 17 days to three weeks if you want to do it that way. And then from there, I take them and put them in the grow-out pens, and then 17 days later, they're ready to go. So with three different steps here, I have three different containers to put them in. So as I'm taking some out of the incubator, you know, as they hatch, I put them in the brooder, put the ones from the brooder in the grow-up pens, and then take the ones from the grow-up pens and graduate them up to the freezer. So it's just kind of a continuous uh, process. So per batch, we're looking at around 52 day, 51, 52 days, then from egg to uh, to uh, to graduated to uh, bacon and jalapenos? 
Yep, yep. I like wrapping them and baking them, putting them on the grill. That's always a great way to do it. Uh, yeah, it's really, really short. If you wanted to do like a three-week cycle to keep things, you know, easy for you to keep track of, that works too. And then it gives you a couple days to clean out the brooder and a few more days to get them growing. Uh, but it's it's really short. I couldn't believe how, how fast they grow. I mean, they almost double in size every day for the first few weeks. And um, when you're when you're raising these things up, and they're they've got this growth rate. Well, I mean, what is the the size of a you know a ready to harvest quail? I'm a hunter, and you know I'm thinking of Bob Whites, and they're a little bit smaller than a morning dove usually. Are these Japanese quail a bit bigger than that, or um, they're smaller than the Bob Whites? They are. I know that the dress out percentage is about sixty five percent of the live weight, and that okay. ends up being about a quarter to a third of a pound. Per bird. Okay. Okay. So, so they dress out to about a quarter to a third of a pound per bird. So, somewhere in that range. Um, so, grown, they, grown they man sitting, grown man sitting down to a dinner. How many of these things do you think he's going to eat with? You know, with with side dishes and all three of them, four of them. <laughs> uh, if you got side dish, two is good. I like to eat three personally, but um, okay. yeah, they they go fast when you have a bunch of people around eating them. But uh, yeah, two or three is good, and uh, you can fit three of them. Uh, nicely in a, a wide mouth cord jar for canning too. They fit in there perfect, so that works out pretty well too. Canned quail. I didn't even think of that till just now. Um, what, what's the what's the equipment that you need for them? It, it's you know I you know I started initially thinking well you needed some kind of nesting box or something, but I was looking online and it's almost like these guys and I don't know if this is what you do or not. Like they just lay an egg right in the middle of the cage and it just rolls down into like a little slot like a pencil holder. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so they they don't really need like a nesting box or anything because they're not they don't get broody. That's been bred out of them. You have to incubate them. Um, the laying pens that I use, I put them at the back end is two inches higher than the front end. So when they lay the eggs, the eggs will just roll right up to the front, which makes it pretty easy to grab them. Um, yeah, but basically just incubate them, and then I use uh, I have two different incubators, and I alternate between the two of them which one I want to use. I have a top hatch and then a, uh, a little giant. They both work fairly well. Um, the brooder is two foot by four foot and 15 inches tall. And I just put pine shavings in the bottom of that. It's got a couple of light bulb sockets and just a couple of red uh, floodlights in there. You could use heat lamps. Just got to make sure that your, uh, your sockets that you're putting the heat lamps in are rated for that wattage so you don't start a fire. Uh, I also have a dimmer switch wired up to it so I can slowly turn the heat down to harden them off as I move them from the brooder. But you definitely have to incubate them, and then because they're not going to hatch themselves, you could put them under like a uh, a silky chicken or something. I've heard of that working out pretty well. Um, and then from there, they just go to the grow-out pens. The grow-out pens are, again, two foot by four foot. I use half-inch hardware cloth for the bottom, sides, and top and then two-by-four-inch cage wire for the front, and that's so they can stick their head out the front, and the feeding trough is on the outside, so they actually stick their head outside of the trough to get the food. Yep. So how big is how big is the grow-out pen, and about how many birds are in you know one section at a time as they're growing out? I have uh, two grow-out pens. They're, they're two-foot-by-four-foot, and then I put a divider in the center of it, so it actually is, is uh, two-foot-by-two-foot, and... I've had up to 25 birds in one of those two-foot-by-two-foot ones. Okay. Sounds like a lot. They're really not big at that point. Um, when I first started looking into it, I was doing research, and I kept seeing, like, one bird per square foot, one bird per square foot everywhere I was looking. And I was like, okay, that's kind of what I was 
basing my numbers on. And then when I went out to pick up the birds from uh, this farm that I got them off of Craigslist, they had like a commercial, I think it was a GQF setup. And I went and looked at it, and I was like, holy cow, you have so many birds in there. So I had a little tape measure with me, went and measured it. And they had, I think it was five birds in a 10-inch by 2-foot section. So 3.75 birds per square foot. Okay. And as soon as I saw that, my numbers completely changed on what I was going to do. I was I was going to run them anyway, but when I saw that, I was like, holy cow, you can really stock them. Um, I had a hard time finding how many birds I could put in a brooder and how many I could find in a grow-out pen. There wasn't too many hard numbers on there. If you search, like, Google Images, you'll see pictures of, I mean, they're, like, stacked on top of each other. When they're when they're really small as they hatch out, they're about the size of a golf ball. I mean, okay. they're tiny, maybe a ping, ping pong ball, golf ball. And then at about three weeks old, they're a little bit bigger. When they get up to, you know, harvest size at five, six weeks, it's maybe tennis ball-ish, a little bit bigger. Okay. So it, it sounds like a real high number when you start looking at it, but when you look at how many of them and they're moving around in the cage there, it's really not too bad. And they all end up huddling together at night when they sleep anyway. So no matter how many you have or how much room you give them, they just pile into a little mass at night. So they seem to be really friendly with each other. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that with birds, they have that tendency to, to, to get together, especially as they're in that growth stage. I've seen people pasturing chickens, for instance, and, and on paddock, and they'll give them a, you know, a 20th of an acre, you know, and there's 50 birds in there. And then at night, you'll see two or three clumps of birds. Um, yep. And they huddle together for warmth and protection. So they, you know, we we anamorphize animals sometimes. I think and think, well, I wouldn't want to be that close to other people, and, and most people wouldn't. But birds are not humans. Yeah, yeah, they they really don't seem to mind. I started with lower numbers, and I just kind of kept increasing it to see if I was going to run into problems. And I really haven't. I mean, there's a few will get picked on here and there, but with so many of them in there, there's not really like one that they'll single out and pick on. They just kind of have. A lot of other ones going on. Um, that's one that's to- interesting. That you know that makes me think of keeping aquarium fish, and there's these little uh, little guys called barbs that will just tear into other fish if you put three of them in a tank. But if you put like fifty of them in a tank, they all keep each other occupied and they leave everybody else alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty much the same thing. Yep, yep. So yeah, so, I um, I really didn't know how many to start with, and I just kind of figured I would start hatching them out and see if I ran into trouble, and if I did, I'd back them down from there. But So you were saying keep feed outside of the cage, so that's probably prevents a lot of mess making then. Yeah, yeah. They are, they're really messy eaters. At first I was using um, the chicken feeder things where, you know, you have the little, uh, the little round thing with the holes in it, I forget what they call them, but they would just stick their heads in there and throw the food everywhere. And uh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm not paying for them to just make a mess. So I started looking for other ways I could do it, and I found somebody that made one out of, like, PVC pipe where they cut slots in it so the bird could stick its head into the feeder, feed, and then as it was throwing food around, the feed would just stay in the feeder. Okay. So I kind of took that idea and just used some uh, four-inch, it's like soil pipe. It's not actually PVC. It's like the uh, cheaper, lighter version of it. Yeah. Foamish. I mean, you can cut it with a knife. So I got you know, uh, 10 feet of that, 20 feet of that, and then just cut like a slot out. So they'll stick their head through the cage wire and then just stick their head down in the feeder. And that worked really, really well for keeping the feed in there and uh, cut down on my feed bill for sure. Now, they're probably have more free access to feed than when they're in their brooder because they're too small for that at that point? Uh, In the brooder, I took the, um, 
basically the same thing, the chicken thing, and then I just extended the top of it with the four-inch pipe, so it just comes right up to the top of the brooder, and I can put a couple of pounds in it. So okay. they they have as much food as they want. And uh, I, I mean, I give them all pretty much as much food as they want. I fill the feeders right up every day. So on that note, I mean, with the growth rate, you kind of want to feed them as much as it'll take. But yeah. on that note, like I've dealt with turkeys, right? And a turkey, uh, baby turkeys, poults will, um, they're stupid. I mean, they're immensely stupid. And if their mother is not around, you basically, if you get them from somebody else and you're raising baby turkeys, you have to teach them how to eat by mimicking pecking with your finger, or the damn things will sit there and starve to death. Do these guys have any trouble getting started, or they pretty much come out of the shell and start eating as soon as the uh, the yolk's worn out? Yeah, they. I mean, they know what to do. Um, I, I haven't had any trouble with that. I, I'll sometimes, like, if one of them looks like it's uh, not really making it, I'll pull him towards the water, but they, they figure it out real quick. Um, and if they don't, well, then their genes are removed you, from she, the breeding line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now I had another question because I, I got the impression from looking at some of the forums that so if these guys start laying their eggs every day and you want to bring through in a cycle, let's say, 50 quail, you're not going to get 50 quail eggs in a day. You'll get them over a period of time, but you want them kind of hatching at the same time. So what it looked like these guys were doing is basically collecting the eggs and leaving them at room temperature for a while before they, so they had kind of like all they wanted for a cycle. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yep. Um, I have, I have like 70 egg layers right now. So okay. if I want to hatch out a hundred birds, I really only have to keep them for two days and then I'll, I'll do a couple more days and just pick the biggest eggs each time and just keep hatching those out. But, um, you can keep the eggs for seven, ten days. Seems to be the uh, internet wisdom as far as how long they're, they'll be good before the hatch rate drops down. Now, I have a brother-in-law whose father raises Bob White quails, like commercially, for like his part of his income. And yeah. I asked him about this, and apparently he keeps them for up to thirty days before wow. he hatches them. Um, now he puts them in. He the guy the guy described it to me as like a chest freezer with, like, the right humidity and temperature and stuff in it. I'm sure it wasn't, like, freezing temperatures, but he puts them in there, and he said, no problem, they'll, they'll store for 30 days, and he gets, like, an 80% plus hatch rate using commercial equipment. So I know you can hold them for longer. Yeah. I generally hold them for no more than a week, but okay. under the right conditions, there, there should be no reason you couldn't hold them that long if he's doing That's it. That's just really interesting because I think most people would be of the common wisdom that, hey, if you leave this thing unincubated for a few days, it's just going to die and go away. That's not the case. And I think for people with smaller flocks than you have, it, it does make, you know, coming up with enough birds to complete a cycle um, and make it worth your while a little easier on you. Because over a week, I imagine, let's say if you had uh, a dozen layers, you'd get quite a few eggs out of that period, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. If you have a dozen layers, you're, you can expect about 10 eggs a day. 10 eggs a day. Yep, so a, li a little under one egg per bird per day, you know, a point eight yep. or something like that. Okay. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about your inputs and your outputs. So, um, you know, per month, how much feed are these guys getting, water? What, what you know, what does it take? And, 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 again, mention the size of your flock so that it, you know, it doesn't scare people because you have a pretty big uh, group yeah. of birds. Yep, I got uh, about 70 egg layers right now, and then I'm constantly hatching them out and growing them out um, whenever I'm, I'm needing them. I don't, I don't run them every single 17 days or three weeks um, just because 
I don't need that many. I got I got my rabbits too, and I got fish also. So um, I figured out the uh, how much feed it takes for the egg layers, and it's about two and a half pounds per bird per month of food, okay. which the feed is about you know forty forty to fifty cents a pound, so about a buck buck twenty five per bird per month. Okay. And for that dollar dollar twenty five, you're getting you know at least twenty five eggs per month. Two okay. dozen eggs. So pretty good there. Um, I haven't actually sat down and, and weighed out like a bag of feed and then raised them up from hatch to freezer to see how much yeah. they used. But if the, the full-grown egg layers are only using two and a half pounds a month, the little ones aren't using that. Sure. I, I, take, out, I sure. take the food all from the same container, so not measuring exactly how much each day, but it's really not much. Their feed conversion ratio is great. Um, as long as you keep them from just throwing their food everywhere. I, I mean, even if you did a hundred percent conversion that they were using the same with or not, you're looking at about two fifty a bird uh, mm-hmm. per produced bird then, and that's uh, for anybody that's ever gone to a market that sell, sells quail and buys, you know, uh, quail. It's that's a pretty daggone good deal. Yeah, yeah. I think the and, and we know it's not here. that much. It, it can't be that much because, like you said, when they're when they're golf ball size, they just can't possibly be eating what a layer is eating. Yeah, no, not even close. Um, I mean, it goes up exponentially as they get larger, but it, it never gets over that two and a half pounds per month. And they're not even, I mean, they're only around for six weeks anyway. So it's its low. Um, the feed that I give them is Purina Gamebird Starter, which is a 27% protein. And the higher the protein you can give them, the better from what I've um basically tried and read. Uh, I ran out of it one time and I had to get some turkey feed because that was the highest I could get at TSC at the time. And it was like 20% protein. And I noticed immediately that the egg production dropped off and the actual size of the eggs got smaller. So hmm. that's something to, to consider too. The Purina stuff, it's a couple dollars more, but it's really not its not that much more for what you get. Sure. So give me those those numbers on the protein again, because it sounded like you said the protein went up and the egg size went down. Oh, no. The the lower the protein that I gave them, the smaller the eggs. Okay. That, that makes sense. But what did you say the protein numbers were? You use So to understand this, are your chicks and your adult birds eating the same feed? Yes. Okay. And it's that pre, it's the layer and starter, or is what was it's it? Just, it's starter? starter. Yep. It is uh just the Purina Game Bird Starter, 27% protein, and that's from okay, Hatch and Graduation. Yeah. 27. I thought you said 17, and then the, the turkey was 20. Okay, so no, 27%. No. And, and, the, and, the, and the babies eat the same thing as the, yep. the, the adults from day one? Yep. yep. I, don't, I don't even grind it up for them or anything. Um, they can figure it out. <laughs> my approach. Now, I did make a mistake once, and I got uh, Purina Game Bird Maintenance which it's the same bag, it just has a different tag, and that was like 17.5% protein. Uh-huh. And when I gave them that, it was their egg production dropped by like 50%. I was like, wow. what's going on? I didn't even realize it until I went and looked at the bag again. I was like, oh, crap. And from then on, that, that didn't happen again. But uh, So it, it does make a big difference for them. If you're trying to get big eggs and you want fast growth rate, I mean, it's like $3 more per bag. It's, it's really worth it. Well, it definitely sounds like it, and uh, so when when we get these these guys uh, to uh, to full size, and it's time for graduation day, what is your slaughter mechanism? 
Okay. Um, it's it's really easy. Um, I grew up on a lake and I've always been catching fish. So whenever I clean an animal, I always kind of compare it to cleaning a fish. Sure. Um, it's I couldn't believe how easy it was. Basically, I just take a pair of scissors, you know, make sure they're sharp. You don't want to be cruel here, and hang them up by their feet. Just grab them by their feet, hang them upside down, and then just scissors right off with their head. I put the scissors to the back of their neck. That way, it severs their spinal cord. You don't have to. Yep. You know, they don't see it coming either. It's a little bit nicer yep. for them. Um, so just drop their head into a bucket. I clip off the wings. I usually set the wings aside for a separate pile, um, and then I'll clip the feet off. The skin, I don't even take the feathers. I'll just tear the skin right off of them. Um, okay. Take the scissors, and you cut near, like, the vent hole. And then there's, because there's some feathers there that won't really come off of the skin, cut them through the vent hole. And then I take the scissors and just right up their spinal cord, clip on either side, pull the spine out. And most of the time, the guts will come out attached to the spinal cord. Got you. The entire cavity is just open at that point. Just so I can make sure I'm trying to understand the, the, the way we're ending up with the finished bird here. we got a wingless bird with probably the legs, the thighs, and the breast that are skinless. That's almost been butterflied open the way you would butterfly open a chicken, but the spine's gone. Yes. I, I cut the wings off, so I don't I don't have the wings on. There's really not much meat on them. No, I wouldn't think so. Yeah, it's a, so it's a lot like I do a dove, except you're retaining the legs and the thighs. Yeah, yeah. I've watched your video on doing a dove. I bet you could do it the exact same way. I don't see why. Yeah, not. except I'd lose I'd lose the legs and the thighs, but for speed. Because for those of you who haven't seen my uh, my dove video, give me thirty seconds and I've got a dove breast from you from a from a from a bird. Um, and and that's not really pushing the speed. I mean, we've had uh, cleaning parties out in the field where we've had you know four guys cleaning uh, birds that you know thirty shot, and the other guys are off wrapping or putting jalapenos, and we can go through all those birds in 30 minutes with four guys. I mean, it's, it's insane how fast you can do that. And that is an advantage over something like chickens because chickens, you're just not going to clean a chicken that way. Yeah. Yep. It's, I could not believe how fast it was. I thought it was going to be way, way longer, way bigger a process. And then I got done and I was like, wow, that was really quick. I wonder how long that took me. So I had my roommate tie me and it was, I got done when I was, you know, doing a few of them at a time, getting, getting the rhythm of it. And you could do one in about a minute. Yep. I mean, it's, it's quick. And then, you know, I like the idea of what you're doing, too. It makes me almost wonder if it's worth doing it with doves because I've always felt bad about pitching the thigh on the leg. Yeah, yeah. They're not big, but there is meat there, you know. There's There definitely yeah, is meat. Yeah. yeah, it might be something yeah. to try. Yeah. You know, dove season's not till September, but I'll bet I'll have some quail before then. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, one so, nice what, thing about it, too, is uh, when you're done cleaning them, you know, it, your hands don't smell like fish or anything like that. No, no. So that's always nice, too. It's a lot faster than a rabbit. A rabbit will take me about 10 minutes. Yeah, I've always noticed that domestic rabbits take a lot more effort to skin than, like, cottontails. You, if you give me a cotton a cottontail rabbit that's still warm, and I, I cut one two-inch slice across the spine, and I can basically just pull the, the skin right off. Um, but for some reason, the domestic rabbits are just a little bit, it's more like skinning a squirrel than a wild rabbit. I've actually never had a wild rabbit before. I've only had the domestic one. Yeah. You, you don't even need a knife to skin them, really. I mean, you can really just, you kind of get the skin along the spine and pull it up a little bit and begin to pull on it. And it'll tear. And once that skin tears, you get your fingers underneath it and out it comes. Uh, I couldn't believe how much more more effort and more knife work was required the first time I did a domestic rabbit. 
because I just I grew up with you know we ate cottontails. Uh, a lot of people won't shoot um, rabbits uh, in front of their dogs because they they want the dogs to stay on birds. I'm like I don't care what the dog finds if I can eat it and it's in season it's dead and the dog did a good job you know. <laughs> but let's get back like back on track here. Let's talk about what kind of what your output is. So you have 70 layers. How many, and I don't know if this is even the right term, would you call them roosters in, in your world? Uh, yeah, I think they're called roosters. I, okay. I haven't heard of so them. So how many males? Just with, how, yeah, um, how many males go with, uh, with, you know, do you have like four and one per cage or something like that? or? Normally you put about four females to one male if you want to ensure good breeding. So I'll keep a couple of good males around, and then I'll cycle the females that I want through because I have some extra cages, so I'll take the male out make sure that the females are getting fertilized. Um, but I keep 12 egg layers in one two-foot by two-foot pen, and then okay. I could keep the male in there with them, so it would be 13 birds total. And there's okay. there's really no problem doing it that way. You can put more males to you know less females. Um, the males, they can be a little annoying at times, so I tend to pick, you know, I, I cull them fairly early, and I select the ones that don't like to crow a lot. Okay. So they crow like a like a chicken? Sort of. It's uh, <laughs> when I got into it, I I read a lot about them, and you know they're really quiet. They're really quiet. And then my first batch of them, I bought live birds from somebody, and I got them. And right when they hit you know puberty for them, the males just started crowing like crazy. And I was like, oh crap, you know I'm not going to be able to keep males. I'm not going to be able to do meat production like I'd want to. Um, I'll be able to keep the females. The females are almost silent. The, okay. the loudest noise they make is like a, it sounds like a cricket chirping. Okay. But most of the time they just beep, 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 and it's really, really quiet. Um, but the males they they have a call. It's not like a crow, like a rooster, but it's kind of a weird call. Um, I knew is what it, it was. Like Bob White's do with you know the Bob White, or is it um, similar? Yeah, actually. Okay. It, it's okay. not as I think it's a little more annoying than that, but uh. Oh. It, it's, <laughs> 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 that might just be me. <laughs> okay. But, uh, yeah, so the first time I got them, I had a few males out there. I think I had four of them, and they just kept crowing and crowing. So I was like, okay, I'll narrow it down to just two. And then they kept crowing and crowing. And then, like, all right, I'll just maybe this just, you know, one would crow, then the other one would crow back. Okay, I'll get rid of one of them so that there's just the one left. Well, I, I left the largest one, and he just kept going. So I, uh, I, don't, I was out there working on something in the garage, and, kind of blacked out and the next thing I know he was wrapped in bacon and put on the grill um, but I had some hatching out at that point so I wasn't too worried about it uh, it turns out that I think most of the female listeners would agree that not all males are created equal especially in the quail world so from that first experience I thought they were going to you know, be a bit of a problem being noisy I was trying to think of other ways I could keep a few males around that would keep them quiet um, on my next batch the males that I have out there now that I've been selecting, they're really quiet. I might hear them once a day when I walk out there, and the, like they're kind of happy to see me, so they'll give me a little bit of a, a crow. But it's not loud at all. Uh, I had my garage door open and the windows open in my garage, and I could barely hear it at my mailbox about okay. 100, 100 feet away. 100 so I won't away. hear them. If I have them out in my, my outbuilding, I'm not going to hear them at all. They're not. <laughs> they're no. they're going to be unannoying. Um, I, I do have some like like questions around like your total production. So what you have these seventy? In fact, hold on a second. Let me let me back up on that. So when you're because yeah okay now now sorry 
when we're looking at the sexual maturity, so we're looking at like 50, 51 days, 52 days to uh, bacon wrapping, but is that bird then at that point also, if you want a new breeder, sexually mature? The uh, the males will start crowing at about five weeks old. So okay. once I, see, I hear the first peep out of the brooder, it's generally time for all of them to go into the freezer, at least all the males. If I want to leave the females a little bit longer, I will. Um, the males, they'll start crowing about five weeks. The females will start laying eggs at eight. Okay. Um, they'll start really laying consistently by ten. Okay. So that is a, a super fast life cycle. Yeah, it like is. Like a rabbit or something. I mean, when I'm you just get a rabbit here. You're talking about culling your, you know, your noisy, annoying roosters, how long it takes to bring up a, a replacement bird. So we're looking at 60 days-ish and maybe a little bit longer for your hens. Yeah, and the the females will lay fertile eggs for about 10 days after they get fertilized by the male, too. Okay. So if you get rid of the male, they're still going to be laying fertile eggs for a, at least a week that you can collect. Is there any way you know out. whether an egg's fertile or not before you try to uh, to incubate it? Not that i found. It's really hard to candle the uh, the quail eggs because they, they have a little bit of a thicker shell, and they have spots all over them. Um, yeah. you, can float, okay. you can float test them. Some people do that. I just I incubate them, and if they don't they hatch, they don't them hatch. They don't. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So what kind of production level are you getting as far as, like, okay, so you got these 70 layers, you've got enough roosters to service them all, and uh, then you're, I'm sure you're not hatching every egg because you would end up with more quail than you, you maybe can deal with. So you're getting an egg yield and a meat yield. So what, what are your numbers working out to there? Um, well, the eggs, pretty much every day, I, oh, you get an egg from about 80% of the birds if you want to figure it out that way. Okay. So I'll, when I'm about ready to gather some eggs for hatching again, I'll just keep sorting them. And I like to, you don't need to do this, but I weigh them and I'll sort them into like different piles. So 12 grams up to 13 and 13 up to 14 and 14 plus. And I like to set the largest eggs and then just work my way down to fill my incubators up. Um, okay. Right now I'm running two incubators and I can put over a hundred in each incubator if I okay. want. I mean, you obviously don't have to, you can put as many as you, you know, as few as you wanted in there or, as many as you wanted. It's really up to the operator, whoever's, you know, managing it. Um, but I'll fill both my incubators up, and then depending on how many hatch, if I get more than I want to hatch, then I'll, you know, put an ad up on Craigslist to see if anybody wants some chicks. And if nobody goes there, I'll see if anybody needs any snake food or other sure. sort of live food, which yep. that works out for buying food for them to feed the other ones up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can, you can fit 100 in the brooder, 2 foot by 4 foot, and then from there right to the uh, grow-out pens, and then from the grow-out pens to the freezer, you're looking at about a quarter pound to a third pound per bird. So every three weeks, you can get, you know, 20 pounds of quail meat plus. Very cool. And is that about what you're running then? Yeah, yeah, as, as I need to. I've run into a little bit of a problem here this winter. Uh, my hatch rate has just plummeted, so... I think I might switch things up this summer and run an extra, like, grow-out pen and okay. uh, do, like, a quail tractor because at this point, I mean, it's it's not really – I kind of subscribe to Jill Salatin's theory of, you know, if I'm walking out there to feed three birds, I might as well be walking out there to feed 30 birds. You know, sure. it's, it's the same amount of time. It's just slightly more feed. And since I'm doing the rabbits anyway, you know, I'm already walking out there once a day. So it's not really, there's really no difference between taking care of 100 of them or taking care of 10 of them. It's just more feed and more poop. Did I, did I hear you say quail tractor there? Yeah, yep. 
So are you, are you doing that? Because my understanding initially was you're doing all of this in your garage. Yeah, they, I am doing all of this in my garage right now. Um, this summer, I'm going to make a quail tractor and then basically add an extra step to it. So after they go to the grow pens and then the males show themselves, I'll get rid of the males because I don't need them out in my backyard crowing. Um, okay. My neighbors like me right now, and I would really like to keep it that way. So okay. I'll take the females out and I'll put them in the quail tractor and then probably give them another two to three weeks just to get even bigger because they'll continue to grow. They're not full grown at the five or six week mark. They'll okay. keep growing up to about eight weeks, but you know, it's a, it's an exponential curve. So they, they slow down as they get up there. Well, it's interesting because I was thinking about kind of like a, a pasture finish and that's basically what you're doing then. And that was kind of my plan. So I'm glad to hear you thinking that way. Yes. Yeah. That's what I would like to move towards is more of that model. And if I can do that way, you know, I'll just do twice as many in the spring, summer, and fall, and you know, shut it, shut down the meat production for the winter. And what kind of an so you're probably getting a, like a, a super abundance of eggs beyond what you want to hatch, right? Yes. Yeah. So what do we do with all these extra eggs? I mean, they're they're good eating. I mean, yeah. Do you have a lot of friends that get free quail eggs, or <laughs> yes, I do. Well fed I, uh, dogs, or what's going on there? Um, well, I pretty much eat as many eggs as I want. I, I eat paleo, so that works out great. Um, sure. They're great for doing hard-boiled eggs. I thought that would be kind of a pain at first, but they're a little bit easier than chicken eggs, in my opinion. The uh, the shell's a little thicker, and the membrane underneath the shell kind of holds the shell together more. So as you peel them, like after hard-boiling them, they just peel right off. The shell's just kind of right Yeah, you off. crack. I, I, I love them. They're great little hard-boiled eggs. It's just kind of, it's like peeling a grape. If a, you know what it's like? You say peeling a grape, and that sounds complicated, but the big, thick-skinned, heavy, thick-skinned Concord grapes, like they grow in the Northeast, you can just basically squeeze them, and the grape part pops out of the thick skin. That's what a quail egg's like peeling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just pick the shell and grab it, and it's almost like it'll just, you know, peel right off around it as one continuous strip. It's, it's pretty easy. I have not tried the purple nurples that you suggested yet. Um, I I have this suspicion that that might be... One of the greatest delicacies of mankind. Um, for those that don't know what a per, you can make it real complicated, but the simple way to make them is just you get your pickled beets and you eat them and leave the juice behind and throw hard boiled eggs in there in the refri- and leave them in the refrigerator for a week. Um, I know people that like go through the whole process of like pickling them as like a new second round, but to me, just throw them in the beet juice. And I've done that with chicken eggs my whole life. And when I heard about how many eggs you were producing, I just thought, oh, my God, it's like quail egg caviar beet juice. I, it just has to be good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've done the pickled eggs. I have I have quite a few jars of those. I just haven't gone with the beet juice yet, but I'm yeah. sure I will eventually. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, eat fresh eggs, boil them. Uh, I also have, between me and my roommate, we have two uh, American Bulldogs and one pug, and uh they eat, you know, the raw food diet. So they eat mostly rabbit and quail eggs and rice is pretty much what their diet consists of. So they get a lot of quail eggs also. Um, I give them away. I give them to my neighbors, give them to my parents, um, which they don't even eat them. They then, my mom blows them and then uses them as decorations around her house. Oh, cool. I thought that was kind of funny. I, she's like, hey, let me have some eggs. I'm like, okay, you know, I you know, give her a couple dozen, and I see her a couple weeks later. I say, hey, how'd you like them? Oh, they're great. Like, okay, yeah. And then I, I see her again, you know, you want some more? And then I ask her, like, how'd you like the taste of them? She goes, oh, I didn't eat them. 
like, wait, what? What you what you do with them? She starts showing me. She's got them on all her shelves and just in all different kinds of decorated areas. And I said, well, if I would have known you were doing that, I would have picked out the nicer looking ones before I gave them to you. But uh, that's another thing that you can do with them too, I guess. Yeah, my grandmother was into that with chicken eggs. She was Ukrainian, and apparently it's like a, a Ukrainian art where she would blow, they put a little pinhole in the top, a little pinhole in the bottom, for those that don't know what you mean by blow them, and you blow the egg out of the shell so it's empty. And she would paint them with different colors of wax. So you take wax and you melt it in a pot and you put an undercoat, and then you take a different color of wax. And she, these things that she made, you know, it was almost impossible to believe, like, my grandmother did that. Um, and there's there's like a whole art form around that that, you know, actually I had for, totally forgotten about Till this moment right now when you mentioned blowing out the eggs. Yeah. Is that like a Fabergé egg? Yeah, yeah. But it was, you know, it was a wax painted, I mean, it would, she would do them, uh, you know, kind of around Easter and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, so that's another thing that uh, they do with them. Um, I've also, I've considered selling them. Uh, where I am, you don't need a permit or anything to sell them to direct to the consumer as long as you have under 3,000 hens. You're considered small scale, so could also do that. Um, but between my dogs and my friends and my neighbors, they, you know, do pretty well getting rid of them. Yeah, I mean, you got a, you, you are. What, did did you ever done the math and figured out like annually what your annual egg production is? Um, no, I haven't counted all of them. I just kind of count them, sample them here and there, and take averages. Would you say so it's like about it's, fifty a day? It, it's more than that. Okay, so let's use fifty a day. That's eighteen thousand a year. <laughs> yeah. How how would you say it's about four and a half, five make a chicken egg? Yeah, yeah. They're they average about twelve grams. Um I've had some that were up to like twenty one grams before. And yeah. I had to do a do a double take. I looked at that and I looked at the bird and I'm like, This egg's bigger than your head. I don't really know how that happened. But even if we say it's five quail eggs to one chicken egg and we say a minimum of 50 a day, that would mean you're producing the equivalent in egg yield of 3,650 chicken eggs a year. And I think probably with a lot less work than it would take to produce that many chickens. Chickens are just more work. Yeah, and I mean, this is a two-foot by four-foot footprint in my garage, too. It's it's all stacked vertically. Um, I mean, it's eight and a half feet tall, so i got to use a step ladder to get up to the top cage. But I, could, I couldn't raise nearly that many chickens in two foot by four foot, even if I went, you know, CAFO style on it, which I'm not about to do. Sure, sure. What, where, where did you get your equipment? Did you just, like, build it yourself, or did you buy it pre-built? I'm talking about the caging itself. It's all it's all just built by me. Um, it's It looks kind of like something red-green would throw together, you know, some two-by-fours and wire and things I had left over, and the brooders just made out of some leftover plywood. Um, I pretty much put it together as a prototype, and I'll eventually remake it with, you know, sheet metal and some other things like that. But I just wanted to see, you know, how it would work and what I needed to change before I spent the money on doing the metal. Um, I looked at the the commercial egg-laying pens that they make and kind of mimicked what they did there, except that, you know, just using half-inch hardware cloth and two-by-fours, basically. Okay. Um do you have any photos of this or anything online? I mean, you'd mentioned something about doing a, a form thread for us, or yeah, I took a bunch of photos. I got to put that, put it together. I'm gonna make a thread for it. Uh, I'm just working about 60 hours a week right now, so time's a 
bit of a crunch, but I've been taking photos of everything all the way through, and I'll, I'll throw one up in the Critters Forum here because I don't have a website or anything right now. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know, it's really nothing too fancy to look at. It's just some two-by-fours and some cage wire, but it's all just stacked vertically on top of each other, and it, it really works great. And you let's let's kind of give the dimensions of the 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 cages again are uh, four by two, but you divide them into two by two. Yep. Um, you use what, what's the the hardware cloth sizes that you use on the sides and the back and the bottom stuff like that. I use a half inch by half inch hardware cloth, and the reason I went with two foot by four foot is just because that makes it easy dimensions when you're buying lumber. And sure. I had the cage wire I got, or the uh, the hardware cloth I got, because it's not actually cage wire, it's a thinner gauge, was a four-foot wide roll. So I was like, I don't want to be too difficult here. I'll just do that and roll them up into a cage. And then the tops of them I made out of, I just used some leftover two-inch by four-inch cage wire that I made the rabbit cages out of. So okay. those are kind of a little hodgepodge. But for the most part of it, it's half-inch by half-inch hardware cloth, and it's you know just the stuff you can get at the local hardware store. And that's the same um, with the floor. The floor yep. is the same thing. Yep, and then the, top. Yep. and then the front you use a bigger stock so that they can get their heads through to the feeders on the outside. And what what was that? Yeah, the doors are two inch by four inch cage wire, which is the same stuff I use for the rabbit cages, and they can stick their heads right through that. So it's just the doors that so you hang the food on the outside of the door. Well, or is the whole front like a big door that comes down? Yep, um, it's it's yeah. one door per two by two. So. And, and you said you put the, the, the cages so your floors are two inches higher in the back than they are in the front, so the eggs roll forward. So you have, you have to open your cages to get your – because I've seen some that are almost like I said, like a pencil dispenser where the eggs come out, but you're not doing that. You're just opening it and reaching and grabbing your eggs. Yeah, that was the original plan was I was going to have it roll underneath the feeder and come out to like a tray, like how they do it, just so it's easier to grab. And then yeah. when I started adding up, I would have been like one – one cage short on wire, and I didn't want to buy any more, so I was like, ah, I can open the doors and reach. Open the door, them. and it's, yeah, it's probably not that big a deal anyway. Because no, I was looking at how they did it, and I went, if you're doing like a hundred cages, and you're in this for commercial production, I think that probably makes sense. But for a small scale producer, it's probably more trouble to build than it's worth. Yeah, yeah, it's really not bad. I mean, you stick your hand in there; they don't heck you or do anything like that. Um, <laughs> I, I grab the eggs before I feed them because if you dump the feed in, they will rush to the front, and then you're trying to push them back, and every once in a while they'll jump out of the cage. Then you got to chase them around the garage and catch them again, which is fun. The, they don't really fly well, something I've noticed. I thought that they they flew well. I've read you know things about people clipping their wings so they don't fly yeah. away. Yeah. I'm not saying they can't fly, but mine can't fly. <laughs> Like I, I've had one, I've had one a couple of jailbreaks where you know one gets out and I'm trying to grab another, another one jumps out and I chased one down my driveway once and just scooped it up no problems ran picked it up they didn't really know what to do I had another time where one ran and it was I ended up trapping it between uh in one of my swales so yeah it, it was running away from me and I had my dog stay. And I went around to the other side and started, like, pushing it towards the dog. And then he didn't really want to go towards the dog, so he jumped up and went over the little cougar culture bed. And the dog chased it, but he stopped, and he didn't fly away. I went and grabbed him. I don't uh, I don't really think they could clear a four-foot fence, honestly. I mean, uh, if they were in a fly pen and they had some practice, maybe. Yeah. But right now, they really just slow their descent. 
I'll tell you, I'm getting more and more of the opinion that I don't need any chickens here at all. I think ducks and these things are – I'm just seeing, like, if that's the case, how I could easily move a couple hundred every day and, and cycle them through with a lot less maintenance than chickens require. And uh, now my question is is on the inside-outside thing. Where are you located? Because I'm in Texas, and I'm thinking if I try to do a breeding operation inside in the in the heat down here, I might have a real problem. Uh, yeah, I'm in southeast Michigan. Okay. So kind of different climates there. Um, when I started reading about them, I read that they liked, like, 75-degree weather, and I didn't really find too much stuff about them on how they would do in cold weather. So this winter's been a bit of an experiment, and they've been really fine. I've been very, very impressed with how hardy these birds are. Um, I make the joke around here that I accidentally kill far more plants than I do critters. Um, they're just they're really, really hardy. The only trouble I had is we had about a week where it was around zero degrees outside, um, and they were not too happy then. Their, their egg production went down to about 50%, and I actually lost one of my egg layers and one of them out of the brooder. Um, but other than that, it's been around, you know, in the mid-20s here, and they're they're fine. It's a little bit warmer in the garage just from all the body heat from the uh, the rabbits and the birds. So it stays about 10, 15 degrees warmer in there than outside. But the garage is not heated. Um, I actually feel kind of weird calling it a garage. It's more like a carriage house. I don't even know that you could keep a, ma- a match lit in there on a windy day. Uh, it's like a one-car one carriage house. I tried to pull my car in there before to do a brake job, and I had to like come in at an angle to work my way around the mirror because I couldn't even fit it straight in. So it's a, it's a real small space, but they've done really, really well in the cold. And, um, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how, how they do in, you know, over 100-degree temperature. But yeah, if you lose a couple, then, oh, well, their genes don't get they're the ones, the next ones. Yeah, they're the ones that don't need to be here. Because what I'm thinking here is I've got this outbuilding. Originally, I was going to turn basically into a chicken coop, and I, I really don't think I'm going to do that. And it'd be interesting if I could set up the type of system you're talking about and at the same time come up with a way where the the birds have an option of an inside or an outside, kind of like they do with kennel dog runs, where there's like a little doggy door there would be a quail door that they can go in and out and have an outside run and an inside run. Um, that seems like it would offer them the ability to thermoregulate and if I did, because I'm not trying to put the density in that you would be, I could do a couple side-by-side runs. They could have access to the ground. Oh, yeah. I bet they would love that. Yeah. 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 yeah and if I could, one do guy, a couple, I could do like a couple adjoining runs so that I could almost, I could rotate them through, too. That's that's an interesting idea. And yeah, I'm talking yeah. about just my layers here because, it, to me, your idea of tractoring them once they're old enough seems like a really good idea. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they'll just keep getting bigger, and I mean, if they can eat a little bit of their feet out there, you know, a little bit of grass finished quail, that'll be great. Um, one of the the guy that I had talked to that raises them commercially, what they do is they put them in a fly pen, which he described it to me as kind of like a hoop house greenhouse, but with netting over it instead of you know the material to make it a greenhouse, and okay. they put them in there and let them fly around. But those are bob whites. They they're a little bit different bird, and they use those for hunting purposes. So they need and they to want them to fly. fly. Yeah, yeah. They don't yeah. want them to be too too domesticated. They're selling them to hunting preserves and what have you. Yeah. And then they so, run in there with a butterfly net to grab them all. <laughs> 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 Sounds like managing pigeons in a pigeon coop, man. Um, yeah. So 
What what are some suburban specific issues to consider? Because I've got this nice semi rural area here, and I can get away with all kind. I, my mind is swimming now with all of the crap I can get away with. So I don't care if they do their quail crow or whatever that is. My neighbors all have roosters crowing every morning anyway. Um, but in a suburban environment, there might be some things you have to consider uniquely. But they also seem like they solve a lot of those problems because you could do them in a garage or a, a shed or something like that. Yeah, I mean it's really just noise and smell. Um, it comes down to, you know, what people don't see, they don't smell, they don't hear, they don't bitch about. So yeah. simple as that. I actually, the, the lot that I'm on, it's a, my house is like a 1927 Craftsman, and the house next to it is a, a 1920 log cabin, and they actually split the lot. It's a really old suburb. So my property line runs just dead center down my driveway, and my garage is actually on the property line. Like, you, you couldn't build it today. You wouldn't be able to get a permit for it. Um, and my neighbors, they had no idea. I figured they had to have known. They knew I had rabbits. Um, I, I figured they had to know I have quail. The guy's out there doing some trim molding, and he's cutting, like, 10 feet from my garage. And that was when I had my really annoying rooster, and he just kept crowing and crowing and crowing. So I went over there, and I, you know, I started talking to him. I offered him some eggs. I, I said, hey, you know, I'm sorry about that. I'll be getting rid of him soon. You know, I just I don't want you to think, like, this is the new thing or whatever. And he was like, what are you talking about? He had no idea. I mean, he's standing right next to me. As I'm talking to him, the bird's crowing. And he's just like, I just thought that was a bird. Like, uh-huh. a wild bird. Huh. Wow. So he, they would have had no idea unless I went over there and told them. And then, like, the next time he was over there working on his house, because he didn't live there right away. He was working on it for a while. His dad came over, and he was like, hey, I want to go see your quails. I'm like, okay. So, you know, let him in the garage, and they checked it out. He thought it was the coolest thing ever. And then my other neighbor on the other side, he has no idea. I mean, his thirty, his yard's 30 feet away from it. No clue. That's <laughs> so, awesome. As long as you, you know, you take care of those things, stay up on the upkeep of, of getting rid of the poop and stuff, there's really no smell to it. Um, one thing I've noticed is as long as you can keep the droppings dry, there's a lot less smell than if they're getting yeah. wet. So You've got me thinking here. I'm going to shift gears on you. I'm sorry, because I, I need to know this now. <laughs> I have a compulsion to know this. I'm just thinking, uh, you know, if you can put them in a two-foot by two-foot area inside, then giving a, a group, let's say, you know, uh, a male and four females double that distance as a tractor. That's a pretty small tractor, and it could include basically an indoor-outdoor thing within the tractor itself. So it would have basically each little tractor would have its own little indoor thing. If you put hardware cloth on the bottom big enough to keep the birds in, then I guess the only thing you'd have to do to make sure that you didn't miss any eggs is, well, I guess you could just, do what you're doing and make sure there's an angle to the floor because I, what I'm getting at is I don't think they would go inside to lay eggs. They're, they seem to just lay an egg wherever the heck they feel like. Yeah, they just they just pop a squat and drop an egg. They don't really okay. put it in a corner or really do anything with it. But you could create the angle at the bottom of your your, your tractor so that basically you'd have these little breeder tractors and alongside your you know and the only thing you'd have to do is go out and collect your eggs and move your tractors every day. Yeah, that's a great idea. Because I got three acres, so there's no reason for me to shut these things up. And and if I gave them some shade cloth so that they could get a, you know, so they had some sunny spots, some shady spots, and an indoor spot, it seems like they should be able to sort themselves out pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, huh. sure. I was actually and thinking I could that... feed them on. I could just throw their feet in their cage, and I wouldn't worry about making a mess. And I know I'm making sure yeah. you had an acre to work with here, but it just seems like a really simple solution. 
You're getting me more excited and my brain's turning faster. <laughs> yeah, and then just, you know, hook up some sort of watering system on the top, maybe like a five-gallon bucket, gravity-fed to... Oh, yeah, a couple of tractor supply wheels with something that basically you could just push it along, um, basically a little bit of a rotate, and would basically, so you could rotate your wheels down, that would, you know, yeah, I, I'm not going to go into the engineering, but yeah, I got it now, it's all in my yeah. head, I'd have these things yeah. that would be about, uh, let's say, two foot by six foot long, and yep. that would be a pa- it would be a paradise for oh, these yeah. things. A little quail tropolis for them. Oh. One, uh, All right. <laughs> one thing I was thinking about doing with the tractors is I also want to make a tractor for my grow out rabbits. So once I wean them away and uh, yeah. I consider basically running the rabbits right in front of the birds and doing kind of a little mini uh, salatin herbivore followed by the uh, omnivore thing. I don't really know how well that worked, but it might no, work. Well. That's, so instead of following uh, uh, chickens with hogs, you're following rabbits with uh, with with quail. Well, you, well, instead of cows, and then followed by yeah. chickens, yeah. yeah, rabbits, and then followed by quail. Are, are there some things that like people should avoid doing? Maybe some mistakes you've made that you know would be a, a good idea not to uh, repeat. Oh yeah, I got about two pages here filled up with mistakes I made. Um, first one: if you've never hatched eggs before, you need practice at it. It's not. You're not going to get 100% of them at any time. Um, it really is something that you need to work at, and you're going to have mistakes. You're going to fail. Just keep trying. Keep taking notes of what's going on, and you'll eventually get your system locked on to where you're able to consistently do it. Um, it really comes down to getting everything in the right like zone, temperature, humidity, turning, oxygen flow, ambient temperature of the room, ambient humidity. Everything really matters when it comes down to it. It's it's similar to hatching chicken eggs. So if you can hatch a chicken egg, you'll have no problem hatching a quail egg. If you're like me and you've never hatched anything before, it can be very, very frustrating when you're getting started. And I've also, seen ones that will turn the eggs for you. Is it probably worth the investment for those things? Or Yes. Yeah, okay. Unless you want to be turning eggs, you know, three to six times a day. And I, I don't have time for that. Um, I, I'm doing this to basically raise as much food for myself as I can. I don't want to make more work for myself. So any way that I can automate this, um, I do that. I automate all my watering and everything like that. Um, one thing that I found really helps is if you can find a consistent spot to hatch them out. I've been using my basement, and spring, like the spring uh, time, is a lot different than the summer. The humidity is different. There's more moisture in the ground, which kind of soaks through into the, the basement, so the humidity is higher. The summer was different. The fall has been different. Winter has been different. Every season kind of has a little bit different thing to it that you need to adjust for. So in the winter, I'm having a lot harder time getting my humidity up, whereas in the summer, I needed to use a dehumidifier to get it down. I ended up using a, I had built an old uh, fermentation chamber for brewing beer a couple of years ago. It's just basically a two-foot-by-four-foot box that's insulated. I went with two-by-four because it was cheaper on the plywood, and then I put a window AC unit in the back of it, and I, you know, hacked it so I could just get it down to about 36 degrees and do some lagering. But uh, I ended up just kind of taking the beer stuff out of there and putting my incubators in there because that gave me a really consistent environment to put them in. And it turns out I like quail meat a lot more than I like lager anyway. So I think they might stay in there for a little bit. Um, so, yeah, hatching can be a little bit difficult. The, they do need a light cycle that's consistent. If the light gets less than about 16 hours a day, they're, they'll 
get a little bit spotty with their laying. Um, at first, I had my light turned to 14 hours a day because that's what I read for the rabbits, and I figured that would be fine for the quail. They were laying about, you know, 60%, 70% of the time, and then I upped it to 16 hours, and then their egg production went right back up. Yeah. So for me, with my idea of this natural quail tractoring process, layers and all outside, I'm going to definitely have a wane off, and, and I'm not going to be in, in production mode through the, the, the deeper part of the winter. Yeah, yep. Okay. Unless you can put some sort of maybe like a, a solar light on there. They don't need a lot of light. They only need, I have okay. one fluorescent light bulb hanging in the garage. And that's on a so, okay, so you could do something with a, a, a light-sensitive fluorescent solar to add four or five hours of light for them. Yeah. That's real yep. simple. That's, yeah. that's not a lot of energy. That's a 15-watt that's a deer feeder solar panel uh, per tractor, probably per two tractors if you, if you do it right. Okay, yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> you could probably get away with doing those, like, solar garden lights, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you that's got kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah, well, I'm thinking yep. that maybe what would work really good is a string of LEDs on the inside of the cage, like a string of 100 LED Christmas lights white um, and a, a, a little bit of a solar charger and a timer that ran them for maybe four hours in your, you know, uh, and then Google went ahead and went out so that they would have like this extended twilight period. Yep. Yeah, you don't need to run the light the whole time. You just need to extend what you have. So, you know, a little bit of force on the at the end. If, they, if I'm down to 10 hours of daylight, I give, give them six hours of supplemental, and then they're still going to have eight hours of dark. Yep. yep. Okay. Um, the high-protein food, I went over that. You need at least 24%. The higher you can get, the better. I'm going to start experimenting with doing some sprouting and also raising some either mealworms or black soldier fly larvae for them and okay. how much I can cut my feed by that. I'm also going to do the fodder system for the rabbits. That's on my, uh, one of my 13 things I want to do in 2013. So that's on the list. I'm going to get that done and hopefully keep some numbers for that. Um, the Purina Gamebird starter is what I normally use, and that's from hatch to graduation. It's 27% protein. If you can get something higher, you might want to try it. It might give you a little bit better results. Uh, but if you get below that 24%, they're not going to be as good as they could be. They'll be alive. They'll be fine, but they're not going to lay as large of eggs or as consistently, and they're not going to grow as fast. Um, another thing I've noticed is they don't really like to, to be moved around a lot as far as taking one bird out of one cage and putting it in another and, like, kind of shuffling them around. When you do that, they kind of they need to establish a new pecking order, so there'll be a little bit of squabble and some fighting. I found out that if you keep them with the same ones they hatch with, you can have a really high stocking density. Like okay. You just you hatch out 50 birds and you kind of whittle them down from there. They're they're all friendly with each other. They're all from the same clutch or brood or whatever you call it. Again, they're behaving like fish. There, that's that's very yeah. similar. Yeah, but if you introduce a new one into it, they'll pick on it. Now, with your layers, then I guess the way you minimize that is you you keep your hen groups together and cycle your roosters through. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yep. Um, yep. So. Another thing I noticed is if you, you're hatching them out and, like, say, one or two hatch, wait until you have a few of the baby chicks before you put them in the brooder because if you put some in the brooder and then you put some new ones in the brooder, like, you know, six hours later, if you only put one or two, the ones that were in there first will kind of pick on the new ones. But if you put them in there as, like, a group of, like, five or at least, they're fine. They'll, they'll kind of look after each other. So they like being in, in the same groups that they started with, and then that kind of minimizes the fightings. 
Um, the stocking densities, we kind of touched on that, but I'll go over it one more time. For the layers, uh, the commercial systems that I looked at, they run about 3.75 birds per square foot. I don't really know how you get 0.75 of a bird, but maybe it's a small one. Um, what I've done in mine is three birds per square foot. I've put them up to four birds per square foot, and this is for layers, full grown. So that would be 16 birds in a two-by-two. Two. They were okay. Um, I didn't really notice anything. I there was really no reason to keep that many in there. I mean, you could do one bird per square foot if you want. You could do one bird per 10 square feet if you want to do that also. It's all up to you, but I, I wouldn't really go higher than four per square foot for the full-grown ones. You probably could, but, again, I, I'm just not really comfortable with that. Uh, the brooder, I've put up to 12 per square foot in there. No problem. I mean, they're the size of a golf ball. So it sounds like a lot, but when you look at them, you're like, wow, those are little, and they're all huddling together anyway. Uh, the grow-up pens, I've done those about six per square foot. So that's like the in-between stage when they're about the size of, you know, maybe a, a little bit smaller than a baseball. Do you think that it, with my idea of tractoring them as, as, as full-time as possible, obviously they're still going to need a brooder for when they're in that really young stage because they don't have a broody hand to take care of them. When they came out of that brooder, do you think they're going to absolutely have to go into something more sheltered to grow out, or do you think that they would be able to move into a, a mobile system like that that's, that's outdoors, assuming that they had the choice of sunlight, shade, or cover? I think they would be fine. They're, the reason I keep them in a the brooder for three weeks is that's how long it takes them to feather out. So yeah. once they have their feathers, they can really thermoregulate. And uh, yeah. the light that I keep in my brooder, I don't – I'd read a bunch of things about, you know, the temperature and then decrease it by this much per day. I don't even do any of that. They they just regulate themselves. Like the lights in one spot, if they're cold, they go under it. If they're hot, they go away from it. If you go in there and look and they're all huddled under the light, then I'll turn the dimmer up a little bit. If uh -huh. they're all, you know, pressed away from it, then I know it's too hot and I'll, you know, change the bulbs out and put a weaker bulb in there. But at three weeks, they have feathers. So they're pretty good at that time. Yeah, that's because here's, here's what I'm thinking for these tractors now. I'm with you. I don't cut things unless I have to. So two by fours come in eight foot lengths. Yep. So a two foot by eight foot tractor uh, with two foot uh, set up is to be uh, uh, almost like a little mobile coop. Uh, so it's completely covered with a little door they can go in. Uh, then about uh, two, you got you got you got six feet remaining. So you take three of that two feet and cover it with sixty percent shade cloth. And then leave three of the last three feet open to the sun. So then they have the ability to come under shade, to go into cover, or to go out in the full sun. And, yeah, and all you, you got to cut is two foot pieces of wood to connect your eight foot pieces of wood with. Yeah, I bet they would love that. Man, so you're creating a new thing right here. <laughs> <laughs> you got any more on that 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 list of years of uh, things not to do without me interrupting you, maybe? <laughs> Getting pretty close to the end there. Um, okay. You know, keep try to keep the the food or the uh, the waste as dry as possible to minimize smell. Um, one thing I did for the watering system, I don't think I talked about that yet, is I have a five gallon bucket that's suspended up in the rafters in my garage, and then I have a, a stock tank float valve hooked to that, which is hooked to my hose. And I'll just turn that on, and it'll fill the bucket up, and then shut off when it gets full. And then from there, it's just all gravity fed. And that feeds, that five-gallon bucket waters all nine of my rabbit hutches and then all ten of the quail cages. Okay. Um, they go and, and, through about five gallons a day between all of them. 
the water itself that they're feeding from, the, they're getting their water from the the birds. Is it like a drip thing with like a nipple, or what do you what are you using? The one that I went with, it's a little cup I got off eBay. It's a cup with like a little yellow um, valve in it, and they as they reach towards the bottom of the the cup to get the last of the water, they'll bump the valve, which will let more water in. I had okay. looked at the other ones that were the uh, the nipple kind. I, I know you had that guy on a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah, I almost bought those ones, and the, the only reason I didn't was because I was worried about the water dripping onto their waist. And yeah, yeah. And I thought these ones might keep it a little drier. When I build my tractor, I'll probably end up going with the, the nipple version just because, you know, try something new. And yeah. Like Could you get me maybe a link to an example of one of those, uh, the ones you do use for uh, for the show notes? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I got them off eBay. It's uh, Beak Time is the name of them. They're just little cuffs, but I'll send you a link to them. Yeah, send me a link to him so I make sure I'm, I'm showing people exactly what you're using. Because if if I don't, they're gonna ask. And and if it works, I'm a big believer in doing what already works. So can yeah. we as we wrap up here, can we talk a little bit about selective breeding to improve your stock? Sure. Um, oh, one more thing with those waters that I like about them is you can disassemble them and replace the O-rings inside too. Oh, I love that. So I bought a couple extra ones and was messing around with them, and you can just pop them apart and change the O-rings on them if they ever go bad, which was a, a nice selling point for me. Um, yeah, so selected breeding. Um, it really depends on what your goals are. There's a lot of people out there that are working with, you know, different animals. There's a, a nice group on backyard chickens that's working with quail, at least they were, and they're in about their 15th generation right now, and they've been selective breeding just to make really, really big birds. And it's really, really cool what they've been able to do uh, just by, you know, culling hard, as they say. So when I do it, I like to... I'll weigh out the eggs that I'm going to hatch, and I don't hatch an egg if, if it's under 12 grams. I try to only hatch eggs that are 14 grams plus, but I generally don't get enough of those ones. And as you hatch the bigger eggs, a bigger egg is going to make a bigger bird. Every day, that bird almost doubles in size, at least for the first couple of weeks. So if you have a 12-gram egg and then you have a 14-gram egg, at the end of three weeks, that one that hatched out the 14-gram egg, is way bigger than the 12-gram one, and the 12-gram okay. one's just never going to catch up to it. So we can start with the egg. That's the that's the place yep. to begin your culling. Cull early and cull hard. Yep, yep. So you can cull at the uh, setting the eggs, and then if you hatch out more birds than you want, you could weigh them out, and then the ones that don't make the cut can you know, be used for other purposes. Um, sell them off and then buy feed with them to feed the rest of them up if you want to do that. So that's another version to cull them. And then go from there to the brooder and then the grow out and the grow out you have a large selection to pick from so you can pick the ones that you want to do uh one thing that i've noticed with people is you know how do i know which is the best one well you you really have to just kind of establish your guidelines for what you want to do and it's not necessarily that you're picking the best bird it's that you're picking the best one for your system or your climate or how you're raising them so if we both hatch the same eggs you might have different birds that did better than ones i did just because they're going to do better in my system. They're going to adapt to that system. And over sure. time, you just keep working the ones out. Like the uh, the tilapia, I got a blue tilapia, and they're supposedly supposed to die at about 55 degrees. Well, my groundwater comes out at about 55 degrees. I had them in a, an Intex inflatable pool in the backyard a couple of years yep. ago. And uh, I, you know, I had some small fish in there, and I did a water change. And I wasn't even really thinking about it. And I just dumped the cold water in there right from the hose. And came back, and about 10% of them were floating. Okay. So, well, I scooped up the dead ones, and then three years later, I can dump the groundwater in there no problem, and I don't have any floaters. Got you. So, 
you can, you know, morph the animal into your system a little bit more just by selecting the ones that do the best in your system. It's not really worrying about, am I getting the best bird? Which one is better? I don't really know. It's, you know, they're, they're all going to do better in different areas. So you're yeah, probably sure. going to, you're going to, you're have some that'll go really large and they'll like the heat. And I have some that, you know, died when it got really cold out. Well, they don't pass their genes on game over for them. Sure. Sure. It makes sense. And it might even be the case that it may be better here to grow a little bit smaller of a bird. Uh, smaller birds sometimes deal with heat better. And I guess we'll find out because I am completely sold on the, this whole prospect. And uh, these little self can, it just seems like I can do so much more with so much less space. Um, and it's, it's, it, it, to move a, a two foot by eight foot tractor once a day is just, it's no big deal, and if even if you have four of them, you're talking about five minutes to to go out there, pick up eggs, move them one footprint over, and and rock on with life for the rest of the day. And I know if Paul Wheaton listens to this show, he's going to be paddockum paddockum. If I paddock quail here, um, I will have uh, hawks um, <laughs> literally in a circle, camped out, waiting for the next brood to come out. That's it's not going to work um, with the number of like crestals and stuff we have around here. Uh, but this tractoring idea would work beautifully. Yeah, yeah, I love the paddock shift idea. Um, I just think, you know, there's different tools for different purposes, and if I could do that, I probably would do that. I have some ideas I've thought about, possibly like a, a movable fly cage where I could yeah. move that around, um, but, you know, that'd just basically be a large tractor. My, my only concern was if you get too big of a footprint with what you're moving and you're collecting eggs, since these things will lay anywhere, you're going to lose a lot of eggs that way. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one thing that would be concerning there. I think I would only use them for maybe growing out, and then if I did want to put the egg layers out on pasture, I probably would do your your idea there with the slanted floor. That sounds great. Um, yeah. And if not, I just let my dogs out, and they'll find the ones that I didn't find. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> they, they'll eat them shell and all. They love those little things. So uh, kind of a last question here. For the person that's just getting started out, most of the equipment, it sounds like, you can buy off-the-shelf stuff, build your own caging, real easy stuff. Where do you get your initially get your birds and your or you know uh, in, in your you know where do you, your eggs or if you're going to start with hatching which may not be the best way to go or your birds if you're going to start out with birds and uh, what about incubators is there like a good supply of those? Um, if I was if I was comfortable hatching eggs, um, I would have no problem just buying eggs off the internet and trying. You're going to get a lower hatch rate by getting chipped eggs. Um, I checked Craigslist and I found live birds for a dollar each. For you know the ones I got ended up being like three weeks old when I got them. They're only a buck each. So okay. there was like two or three people within my area that were selling them consistently. Like every couple of weeks they would throw them up. So I made my cage and was just kind of waited for them. And once I saw them up, I went out and bought them. Um, if you you know that's the way I would start. If you're not comfortable hatching eggs or you haven't done it before, just because then you have a sure thing. And then once you start getting your own eggs, you know, if you set an incubator full and they don't really work out that well, you know, oh, well, those are eggs you could have eaten instead of the ones you paid for and waited for them to get there and, you know, some special Texas A&M bird or something. Uh, The incubator, I got one of them as a hand-me-down from a friend. And then the other one I got off a Craigslist. All the equipment I pretty much just made myself bought the things I needed. I bought, like, the watering systems. I bought the cage wire and the uh, the troughs for the feeders. I made that out of the not really PVC pipe. I think it's soil pipe is what they call it, or drain pipe, um, two-by-four scrap wood. It's really not that big of requirements. The, uh, the rabbits needed more 
specific like cage requirements because you couldn't use like a hardware cloth on the rabbit floor. It'll sag too much. But the birds are so light, no problem. Very cool. Any uh, any final thoughts on those that think this sounds cool but but think it might be a little bit too complicated? I would say just do it. Um, I I sat on the fence for it for a while. I did a lot of research and was thinking about it, and then you know kept running into my brother brother in law, and he's you know did you do it yet? Did you do it? And he's the one who really convinced me. He's like, man, it's so easy. Just go do it. So that that's my advice for people: is just just go do it. You're going to make mistakes, but that's okay. You're not going to learn any other way. So you might as well start. Um, you don't want to be trying to do it when you absolutely need it and learning on the fly. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Better practice now when you you have the time. Um, I would just say just just get started on it. Um, one cool thing that I, I saw on that backyard chicken website was uh, they were doing like egg exchanges between people, so they all kind of set the same guidelines as far as you know we're only setting eggs this big if they're not at this point at you know this time call them, and then every so often they just like will mail eggs to each other swap them around to keep the bloodlines going, you know, without getting them too inbred. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, if there's more TSP listeners that start getting into doing quail, maybe, you know, set something up like that. That would be kind of fun to do, make a, a TSP bird. Something like bird eggs exchange. Good way to diversify your genetics and, and bring yeah. in new traits and and things like that. Um, I am, I'm on Craigslist right now and I've already found a supplier that's, uh, it's about 60 miles away, but it wouldn't be like I'd be driving out there weekly. It would be a a, a single uh, expedition to pick them up. So uh, if if I have that, then odds are that most people have that somewhere near them if they'll check their, their Craigslist and eBay, what have you. And it might be good, too, because if you're going to go buy from someone that's breeding, uh, it would give you an opportunity to look actually and see uh, how they're doing things. Yeah, yeah, that was what was great for me is I went there and saw what they were doing, and I was like, oh, it completely changed my mind of what I was capable of doing. I was thinking a bird per square foot. And then when yeah. I saw this set up, I, I pulled out my little tape measure I keep in my pocket and measured it out. I was like, holy cow. And uh, it was also cool to see they had Muscovy ducks, like, free-ranging everywhere. It was about a 10-acre parcel. They had a, a Joe Selton, um chicken tractor, like, just Joe Selton spec set out there. I was like, oh, cool, chicken tractor. And then I did a second look at it, and it was full of rabbits. Oh wow! I looked at the lady and I go, "Is that a rabbit tractor?" She gets this funny look on her face, like nobody knows what the hell that is. <laughs> she yeah. goes, "Yes, that is a rabbit tractor." So I, I started asking her questions about that, and apparently they use the the chicken tractor when they're not using it for chickens. They'll just put their rabbits in there to grow out. They don't keep their breeders in there. Just the, I got the kids. The they're growing out. They're growing out their 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 fryer bunnies in there, and that's, yep, yep. I think that's what Joel's son is doing. Actually, is they have all their breeders in conventional hutches, but they grow out their once their bunnies are big enough to handle it, they're out in tractors, and it it just seems like a better life form. I mean, let's yeah. let's face it these these birds are looking at fifty sixty days till uh, till they meet a sharp pair of shears. Uh, they might as well have a, a, as fulfilling as a life as they possibly can while they're uh, while they're they're becoming uh, potentially bacon wrapped uh, jalapeno infused uh, deliciousness. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> I agree with that. I would I would like to do the the tractor method. Uh, the reason I started with the conventional method is just because I figured I'm going to need somewhere to put them in the winter. Um, I yeah. might as well start with something tried and true, and then I can move towards more experimental setups. It's not really good starting with an animal you don't know anything about and a setup that nobody really knows about. That just seems like a recipe for disaster to me. 
but and it may be we'll find out but uh, <laughs> oh, i'm sure you'll do fine <laughs> i i think there's been enough work done that you know what the needs are so yeah. it, it it seems like that and the other side of it is if you if you practice some of the stuff you're talking about which would which are the ones that don't make it or just you can tell they're not handling it well go ahead and call those eventually you'll end up with stock that can handle it and yeah. I guess that's another big reason for people to consider check your Craigslist, check you know classified ads and stuff, and try to find birds from local stock because they're already somewhat adapted to your climate. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. For sure, that's where I got my rabbits as well, and they've they've done great here too. Yeah, that's something that's a little bit tougher down here because they're furry. And, you know, they people do it, and they they have some success, but they they have a lot of stress on on them as well. Um, Marjorie Wallcraft's done pretty good with rabbits in Texas, but I think it took her a while to find some, you know, find some genetic lines that basically just started to do better. Yeah, yep, I agree. And with the rabbits too, I think it takes them at least six months before their breeding age. Yeah, yeah. Depending on the breed. With the quail, I mean, they're already breeding at 10 weeks. So you can get through five to six generations in a year. Yeah. So you can select really hard quickly and uh, get them to where they want to go. Whereas a rabbit, you know, you you raise one up six months later and then you go to breed it and it's, it ends up being a terrible mother. You know, it's kind of a waste of time, kind of annoying. But, but the birds you're through a whole year so by the time. You, yeah, you're through a whole year by the time you know that. Where I can be through three, four generations in that same yeah. time frame. Yeah, it took huh. me almost an entire year to get my rabbit um, production up to being, you know, having good producing does filling my cages instead of ones that I fed for eight months and then turned out to be duds. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah, as soon as you know you've got uh, with the birds. Yeah, as soon as you know you've got something not producing, he it just gets bacon wrapped and, and you're on your on your way to something else. That's right. Very cool. Well hey Brad, uh you didn't let me down, man. I've I've really been excited about getting you on and I'm probably more excited now about quail than I've ever been before. I hope a lot of other folks out there We'll take your advice and follow the uh, the credo of the great Nike and, and just do it because I think it's probably one of the easiest ways into meat production and egg production that a, a person can do. It certainly sounds, from a standpoint of a productivity-to-input world, less work than dealing with chickens. Yeah, I mean, I've never dealt with chickens, so I don't know exactly, but it's been really easy. Um, the hardest thing has been hatching and getting them right, and then that changes with each season. But once you've got that button down, it's I am very impressed with how hardy these birds are. Um, one more great thing about it that, that I don't think I mentioned before was it's on-the-hoof meat production with a really low number of breed stock. So you get to choose how many eggs you set based on your needs. You're not really limited by the animal's gestation capacity. So, like, if I want more birds, I can set more eggs. If I want more rabbits, I can't really go up to my doe and, like, twist its ear or pull on its tail and tell me, hey, I want you to give me 20 rabbits this time. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no real way yeah. to modify that. It's going to yeah. give me what it's going to give me. But with the quail, I can set as many eggs as I want, set as many as my incubator can handle, or I can handle the brood out. You know, if I only want to do 10, I'll only do 10. If I want to... Fill up 240. I'll do 240. Sure. And if you need, if you decide, well, I want to do 20 more, um, you're talking about adding a layer. Even if you're using every bit of what's coming out, you're not talking about adding, you know, four of them. You're talking about adding one, just letting yep. one bird out of your last batch come up and become a layer. Yeah. Yep. So you can keep Very the breed cool. stock low, and you can, if you ever need to, you can just up your production at will. And the, the the feed that they use is 
pretty well storable as well. So from the prepper standpoint, if people say, well, you have the input of the feed, but you can store plenty of feed uh, oh, yeah. for long duration. So, I mean, how much feed would you say you're using on your flock a, a month? Oh, probably 200 pounds. Okay, 200 pounds. Yeah. So I mean, if you if you if you put up, you know, it sounds like a lot, but it's just a bunch of sacks, twelve hundred pounds. You got a year's worth of feed. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, you're buying two hundred pounds worth of feed for hundred bucks. Okay, fifty cents a pound. Okay, cool. Very cool, man. Well, hey, I want to. That's a little bit higher of a price. I get my feed from the local feed store. Instead of, I could probably get it cheaper from like Tractor Supply, but you know, it's about the last thing that's still open on Main Street, so I go pay that extra couple of bucks. But you could probably get it for forty cents a pound if you shop okay. Very cool. Very cool. Well, hey man, I appreciate you being with us here today. Yes, it's been great. All right, with that, folks, this has been Jack Spearco today, along with Brad Davies, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.